We're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Acts, and today we will have God's Word open us up to the ninth chapter, Acts chapter 9, and we'll be reading from verse 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 9, starting on verse 1. Now this is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to our saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, today, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 9 and revisiting this familiar story of Paul's encounter with Jesus. Now, as we do so, I'd like to focus this morning on aspects of Paul's conversion that are not unique to Paul. 
and aspects of his salvation that are not dissimilar to our experience, to our experience as Christians. You know, I think when it comes to Paul's conversion story here in Acts 9, we have a tendency to focus on the extraordinary details, uh, the bright light that shone from heaven, the blindness or the scales that fell from his eyes. We like to focus on the audible voice of Jesus, so much so that we often forget that this story is at its core a sinner being saved. This story at its foundation is about a man in his sin coming to know Jesus. A man being saved, being called, and ultimately being used. And that is not unique to Paul. So today, as we carefully go through the passage, if you are a Christian, I want you to think about your own salvation. I want you to think about how the Lord met you in your sin. And at the very least, rejoice in what he has done. And if you're not a Christian, I think this passage gives us a good template for what true conversion looks like. So the four aspects that we'll focus on uh, are, are, are these. First, uh, divine intervention. Uh, second, we'll look at an inner struggle. Third, we'll look at the community of believers. And fourth, the outward calling. So these four aspects of conversion. First, divine intervention. I want you to notice in the passage that Saul, he is traveling to Damascus. He's traveling to, to Damascus with a clear purpose and a clear goal. He wants to put an end to this false cult called Christianity. But Jesus intervenes. Jesus, he forces himself onto the scene. He makes himself known. He surprises Saul, and he disrupts whatever plan he had. Like a director, seeing that the actors have totally misunderstood the original story, he stops everything, and he comes onto the stage, and he hands everyone a new script, and he says, no, this is where we are now going. This is what the story is going to look like. You got it wrong. This is our new direction. Friends, this is how salvation always begins. It always begins with divine intervention. One does not encounter Jesus because he simply wants to. One doesn't meet Jesus because she's simply seeking. No, people don't meet Jesus because they're worthy or they're good people. No, it always begins with God unilaterally intervening. That's how salvation always begins. See, this is one of the main reasons why Christianity doesn't have a holy place. We don't have a physical location of some mountain way up there or some cave way down there that if you finally reach that place, you can meet God. No, we don't have such a place. Why? Because in Christianity, God finds you. You do not find God. You cannot seek him out on your own. You cannot initiate it. It's God who intervenes first. I mean, just think about the day when you first believed. It wasn't on your calendar. There was no title or event titled, Meet God. 
No, God in his mercy forced himself into your life. It came as a surprise and it felt sometimes almost serendipitous. But when you look back, you realize that God had a plan. He was orchestrating the circumstances and the situations around you, whether it was you having Christian parents or attending a summer retreat or meeting a Christian friend in college or meeting a coworker or meeting someone random on the street. It was God who was orchestrating these things so that you would meet him, so that he would invade your life. Last week was Mother's Day. Uh, last Sunday was Mother's Day. And uh, I had the great privilege of uh, serving three women in my life. Uh, my mother, my mother-in-law, and the mother of my own children, my wife. Now, because my boys, my three boys are still really young, uh, I have to plan Mother's Day for my own family. Now, at this point, I'm not sure if it's because there are three young boys or it's just because they're three boys. <laughs> uh, if you have daughters, please tell me. <laughs> please tell me everything, all that we're missing. Uh, so as I'm thinking, what should we do with our family uh, for Mother's Day? I, I hear about this small garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania called Chanticleer Garden. You might have heard of it. Now, because it was Mother's Day, it was fully booked, and I was determined to get a reservation there. So, you know, I'm on the site you know, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. Whenever, you know, the, the weather forecast goes bad, I, I know that's my time. So I go on, refresh, refresh, and I finally get one slot. One slot opens up. It's at 5 p.m. Now, I don't tell the family, but I get the reservation, and I tell my wife and kids, oh, you know what, today, why don't we go outside, get dressed up, and uh, around 4.30, we, we can take some pictures. You know, we'll try to hit the golden hour, right, and we'll have some fun. So we all get dressed up, family doesn't know what's going on, and I said just, hey, let's just get in the car, let's take a drive, and let's uh, visit somewhere. And as we're going, you know, I start to explain to the family, you know, there's this small garden nearby, and I, and I hear it's good. Let's just go there, right, as if nothing was planned. So we drive out there, and we enter into this small yet beautiful garden. Uh, and I made it seem like we had just stumbled upon it. Uh, but of course, I had everything planned, the reservations, the tickets, the places we would visit and look at. Now, here's one photo we took last week. That's, that was last week. Uh, I don't share on social media. I share with our congregation. Now, afterwards, we go to dinner. We go to this nice place, and there my boys take out the presents that they had prepared that they were anxiously withholding all week, and they give it to their mother. And it was a perfect ending. And on the way back, my wife, still surprised by everything, she asks me, oh, did you have all of this planned? I said, yes. It was a surprise. It felt serendipitous. But everything was planned. The circumstances, the schedule was all steered and bent towards that evening. Friends, this is how God intervenes in our life. We have a schedule, we have a plan, we think, what we, we think we know what we're doing, but God interrupts all of that. Yeah, it comes as a surprise, it comes as a shock. But as we look back, we see that God in his wisdom was orchestrating all of that so that he would meet us, so that we would meet him.
So the first aspect of salvation, we find that God intervenes. The second, is, as we look at our outline, there's an inner struggle. I think one of the biggest misunderstandings of Paul's conversion is that we often assume that Paul came to saving faith the moment he saw the bright lights, the moment he heard the voice from heaven. But if you look at this passage again, I do not think that's the case. In verse 5, as, as Paul is met with this light, he asks, who are you, Lord? Okay. Paul has no idea it's Jesus. And when he refers to him as Lord, it's not Lord in the religious sense, but it's Lord in the formal sense. He's saying, sir, who are you? And this is how Jesus responds, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuted. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, after Paul hears this, he doesn't get on his knees. He doesn't start to repent. He doesn't confess faith and belief in Jesus. No. Paul, he's blind. He's in excruciating pain. And the only thing he can do is follow instructions because he's handicapped. So what does Paul do? He enters the city like Jesus told him to in verse 9. And he told, um, as Jesus told him to. And in verse 9, it tells us that he was without sight and without food and drink for three days. He was without food and drink for three days. I think this is a really important detail. Why isn't Paul eating and drinking? Why isn't Paul eating and drinking? Not being able to see has nothing to do with one's ability to eat and drink. Especially consider Paul was just in the desert. He was traveling a long distance. A bright light was shining upon him. He must have been parched. But why does Paul abstain from eating and drinking? Why? Because Paul right now is going through a crisis. See, everything that he believed and thought about God is now being challenged. See, Paul all along was so convinced that Jesus was a fraud. He was convinced that Jesus was dead, that his disciples had stolen his body. He was so confident that this Christianity was false, that he oversaw proudly and justly the murder of Stephen. He was so confident that these Christians were wrong that he was going to other cities to find Christians and persecute them. Okay. Paul, he isn't on YouTube just leaving nasty comments, okay? He's actually getting up, getting letters, authority, and he's going to these cities to persecute Christians. He's going to different towns to put an end to this false movement. Look at what verse 1 says in today's passage. This is how it describes Paul, um, formerly known as Saul. It says this, but Saul still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. What is Paul doing? It describes him as breathing out threats and murder. You see, he is so convinced and he's so obsessed with putting an end to Christianity 
His entire life revolved around the Jewish law, his Pharisaic tradition. But this one incident where Jesus comes upon him is challenging everything. In other words, Paul is going through an existential crisis where everything he knew, everything he believed, everything he held fast to is starting to crumble. See, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, what does that mean? It means that Stephen's death wasn't capital punishment, but it was murder. If Jesus is the Messiah, what does that mean? It means that for Paul, the life he lived, the three decades he spent crafting and planning his life was in vain. It was empty. It was wrong. That turns his world upside down. And as a result, Paul, he is in a moment of crisis. For three days, he's frantically and desperately trying to make sense of everything. And this is what I mean by an inner struggle. See, coming to saving faith isn't just about hearing the truth. But saving faith is accounting for that truth. If Jesus really did die on the cross for my sins, and if he really did rise again from the dead, what does that do to my current belief system? What does that do to my life goals? What does that do to my life plans? What does that do to my very own, my foundations, my relationships, my belief, my world, my everything? See, the truth of the gospel, friends, could never be just an add-on, an accessory to your all-rated already curated life. The gospel is an invasion. It's supposed to disrupt your foundation. It's supposed to challenge the loves of your heart. It exposes the secret idols of your life. It ought to cause panic, chaos, and deep, deep inner struggle because ultimately what the gospel is saying is this, you need to get off the throne of your life because that is Jesus' place. See, when met with the truth of the gospel, it causes an inner struggle, one to wrestle with it. Because the implications are just so weighty. Paul shares a little bit more in depth about his inner struggle in Romans 7. If you look in Romans 7, Paul says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But listen to what he says in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, proved to be death to me. See, in Romans 7, Paul is talking about his former life when he was a good Torah-keeping Jew. And during this time, Paul confesses that one of his biggest struggles was the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Paul says this, listen, the law was great. It made me aware of sin, but... He says, no matter how hard I tried, as a Jew, no matter how hard I tried to keep this law, 
sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And ironically, sin did that through the commandment, through the law. So here is Paul, a stand-up Jew. On the outside, he appears to be faithfully keeping the law. But inside, what is he struggling with? He's struggling with hypocrisy. The inconsistency between the life he portrayed to live and the life that he was really living was eating away at him. It was eating away at him. I mean, just think about it, right? As Paul talks about how he came to faith, the struggle that he had, of all the commandments, it's the tenth, do not covet. I mean, here's Paul, the protege, the young promising Pharisee, the prominent prestigious fellow, the person that everyone was jealous of. What did he wrestle with? Covetousness. Later, he shares the same incident of his uh, on, on the road to this on the road to Damascus, and he shares it in Acts twenty six fourteen. And here's what he says: This is a detail that is not found in today's passage. But as uh, Paul retells the story of how he met Jesus, he says this: This is what Jesus says: Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what this is saying? Do you know what Jesus is saying? It's revealing that even before Jesus came to Paul in Acts 9, even before the bright lights and the audible voice, Jesus was revealing himself to Paul. He was pricking at his heart, and Paul was resisting. Jesus describes Paul to this rebellious horse who was kicking against the goads, who's fighting, refusing, rejecting the gospel as much as he could. Paul was constantly fighting and pushing back. And on this road in Acts 9, Jesus corners him in. He takes away his sight. He has no choice. And now Paul has to come face to face with this reality. Will he confess that he was wrong? Will he confess that he is beyond repair? Will he confess that he is sinful despite all of his works? Will he confess that he is a sinner in need of a Savior? Friends, I know that this looks different for each and every believer. We struggle with um, just things uh, in, in very different ways. However, while everyone's story looks different, everyone must struggle. Everyone has to struggle to make sense of the truth of the gospel. Okay, so you met Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean to your beliefs, to your foundation, to the way you live? What does that mean to everything? You know, when I speak with non-believers, people who aren't Christian yet but maybe exploring, I find that these people, they're not afraid of the truth. They want to know the truth. But what they're really afraid of is, what then does the truth mean for my life? They're not afraid of the truth, but they're afraid of accounting for the truth. If this is true, what does that mean for my non-believing parents? What does that mean for my non-believing grandparents who passed away? 
What does it mean for my friends? What does it mean for my worldview? What does it mean for my purpose, my desires, my passions? What does it mean for my life? The implications are world-shaking. You know, Paul, during this time, could have walked away from this. I could have walked away from it. You could have walked away from it. We could have simply dismissed it as saying, you know what? It means too much. It changes everything, and we are not ready for that. But you see, that's the haunting effect of truth. While the gospel seems so consequential, if you accept it, it's going to change everything. It seems so weighty. The truth is, apart from it, there is no peace. While the gospel might seem so consequential, there is no peace outside of it. And friends, I just want to share with you this morning that if the gospel doesn't bring that level of disruption in your life, if accepting Jesus was just a cultural change, if it was just a change in your schedule or change in your habit, it might be that you have just adopted cultural Christianity, not truly Christ. The gospel brings that level of disruption. It ought to change and shake and shatter our foundations. It ought to change how we view life and see others. You know, there are three things that the New Testament continues to talk about. It hammers away on this point. It talks about three things, how you treat people, how you view your body and other people's body, namely in the realm of sexual ethics, and what you do with your money. The New Testament talks a lot about these things. How you treat people, what you do with your body, and what you do with your money. The New Testament talks about these things. You know why? Because those areas are the hardest to change. And without a real encounter with the risen Christ, without a real accounting of that encounter, these things will never change. So first, we find that there's divine intervention Second, we find that there's an inner struggle. Third, we find that there's a community of believers. Paul doesn't come to faith by himself. There's a divine intervention. There's an inner struggle. But in addition to all of this, there's a human element, Ananias. God sends Ananias to Paul to heal him, to baptize him, and to walk with him through everything that happened. I mean, think about Paul, right? You know, he's on the road to Damascus. He's getting ready to persecute Christians, to even murder them. He sees this bright light, and he's without sight. He goes without food and drink for three days. He's in an emotional crisis. He's in turmoil. He doesn't know what's going on. Everything is being challenged. And the first words he hears from Ananias is, brother, brother. God uses the body of believers to bring people to faith. I would bet a fairly large stake that no one here in this room came to saving faith solely on their own. No one came to faith solely through a revelation from God. No, there were people involved. Teachers, counselors, pastors, parents, drivers, friends, coworkers, relatives. 
there was somebody in your life that God used, whether big or small, whether apparent or hidden, someone that God used in your life to bring you to saving faith. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, pastor and theologian, he writes in one of his books a story about a Scottish man who came to faith. And he describes uh, this man's journey to faith in this way. Uh, this man was hired uh, as an employee for a company. And uh, every day he went into work. And as he, passed, as he went into his office, he had to pass by the secretary's office. Now, this man tells the story that there were three women in that secretary room. And they all were typing away on these old typewriters. There were, there were no computers back then, but there were these heavy metal machines that made a lot of noise, clicking and clanking. And this man had very sensitive ears, and so every morning as he passed by the secretary's office, he would notice that all three of them were just typing away fervently every morning. As some time passed, he noticed that there was this one typist who was always typing consistently. She wouldn't stop. She wouldn't take breaks. She was on the same pace. She had the same cadence. There was a lightness about her, a consistency about her, a friendliness about her in the way that she typed away on these heavy metal machines. The other two, they would stop here and there. They would go back. They would speed up. They would slow down. They would get louder. They would get softer. And every morning as he passed by, he heard this. It would bother him so much. He began to think to himself, he began to ask this question, what is going on? Who is this woman? So one day he has a chance to ask the manager, and he does. He says, what's going on in there? Why is she typing so consistently? Why is her typing so different? And the boss replies in this way. He says, she's a Christian, and he just walks away. Now this man heard this, and he was puzzled. What on earth is the connection between the way this woman works, the way she types, and the things that she believes on a Sunday? So one day he has a chance and he approaches this woman. He says, I heard you're a Christian. There's something strange or different or unique about the way in which you work. And they start talking. They start having a conversation. And he discovers that what she believed on Sunday transferred into the way in which she worked on Monday. What she heard and believed and professed on Sunday affected the way in which she lived her life Monday through Friday. She believed that Jesus was Lord on Sunday, and when she walked into work, she didn't work just to get a paycheck, but she believed that she was working for her Lord, to please her Lord in the most ordinary and in the most mundane context. So every morning she would go and faithfully type away. St. Carolyn Ferguson writes that that person came to know Jesus. That Scottish man, through that female typist, came to know Jesus. And that person later on becomes a pastor, and years later he witnesses he preaches to young Sinclair Ferguson. And he writes in his book to that woman who was faithfully typing away. You shared the gospel with this man, and I've come to know Christ through him. You know, the way in which God brings about this extraordinary salvation, the way in which he brings about eternal life, 
Yes, God intervenes. Yes, there's an inner struggle, a crisis that we have. But almost always, it's through the instrument of human hands and human souls. You know, I want you to notice what Ananias says. When God says, hey, listen, there's this man. I want you to go to him. Basically, says God, not him. No, 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 no. You don't know who he is. I don't like him. Our community doesn't like him. He is a terrible person. I am not going to Paul. But God uses him to bring the gospel of healing to this broken man. I mean, how ironic. Friends, if you really want to know who God has called you to, it's probably the people that you least like and the places you least desire to be. When I first became a Christian, someone recommended me a book. It was titled The Heavenly Man. I have it here. It's written by a Chinese pastor, uh, a man who came to faith. And he, this man, in his biography, he talks about the time that he spent uh, in a prison in a small southeastern Asian country called Burma. He talks that uh, while in Burma, he was heavily persecuted. He was imprisoned. He went without food and drink. Uh, this small country called Burma was under military dictatorship. And he talks about it was one of the poorest countries by GDP at that time. He described the living conditions. I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, I was like, oh, this is, a, this is an amazing testimony. But I remember I told God, I'm never going to Burma. Never. So I went to Cambodia. I went to China. I went, you know, to different countries in Africa, but never to Burma. Until in 2016, I came to this church. I arrived in May, and I was told in July, we're going to Myanmar, a.k.a. Burma, the place I said I would never go. Now, how the Lord loves irony. You know, we say often that God has a sense of humor, but we say that because I think that's the only way we can make sense of his wisdom. It's the only way we can make sense of his unfathomable love. Who is the Lord calling you to today? To reach who? As a body of believers, as a community of believers, who is it that the Lord is calling you to reach today? And the person that you think, no, not him, no, not her, no one likes him, no one likes her, they are terrible, they are terrible. It may be that individual that the Lord is calling you to this morning. Fourthly and finally, shortly, we find in Paul that as he is saved, there is an outward calling. Right at the start of his spiritual pilgrimage, Paul is saved and he's called for a reason. He's given two callings, and I'll be brief on this. First, he's called to the Gentiles. In other words, he's called to people. And second, he's called to suffering, suffering for the sake of the gospel. We find that in Paul's case, commission immediately follows conversion. That as he comes to know Jesus, as he's baptized, as he receives the Holy Spirit, he is called. He is given a purpose. He is saved for a reason. To be an apostle to the Gentiles. The, the Jew who was so zealous for his own religion, 
who is so passionate for his own people, is going to be sent to the greater Roman world to reach barbarians, to reach Gentiles, to reach pagans, to reach Greeks, to reach emperors and rulers with the gospel. As Paul is saved, as he's converted, he's also commissioned. And friends, this is not unique to Paul. When the Lord calls us, when the Lord beckons us, when the Lord converts us, we are also called. We're called to people. And we're called to suffer. Suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is what Paul says in Philippians 1.29. Saying that my experience is not unique. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I mean, how ironic is it that much of our lives, we spend almost every ounce of energy we have to avoid suffering. But the Christian call is the exact opposite. That when he calls, he calls us to participate in his suffering. Now, this isn't just to spite us. This isn't out of spite or vengeance. This isn't because God is saying, you know, Paul, you did a lot of wrong to my people, and I'm going to put it back on you. God isn't being vindictive here. But the calling that he has to Paul and to us It's the greater glory and participation in the cross. It's the greater intimate knowledge and experience of the cross of Jesus Christ that we may know him in the power of his resurrection to share in his suffering, to become like him in his death, as to somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3. Brothers, sisters, this morning, may you be reminded once again That when he saves, he calls. And that calling is to people the nations and a calling to share in his suffering. Would you join me in prayer at this time?